welcome to a special edition of Elixir Wizards. It's a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. I am Justice Epen, and it is my pleasure to bring you the season four finale of Elixir Wizards. The theme of this season has been system and application architecture, and one of the most interesting through lines of the season has been an ongoing conversation about domain-driven design. So we came up with the concept, whose design is it anyway? It's a show, a discussion, a game show, perhaps, about domain-driven design complete with points that don't matter, hosted by myself, Justice Epen, and my co-hosts, Eric Ostrich and Sunday Mint. We are honored to have as guests on the show, Chris Keithley from the Elixir Outlaws, Joppa Swadia, a senior engineer over at Podium, Mark Windholtz, the owner of Agile DNA, and Mickey Rosenis, a senior engineer over at Frame.io. Without further ado, please enjoy the season four finale of Elixir Wizards. Whose design is it anyway? All right. Well, welcome, everybody. We should probably do a quick around the room and introduce ourselves. Everyone's been on the show before in some way or another, but this is going to be a different kind of episode. So I'll start. My name is Justice Epen. I am the host of Elixir Wizards and a developer over at Smart Logic. I'm really glad to be here, sort of moderating whose design is it anyway. We're joined by my co-hosts, multiple co-hosts now, Eric Ostrich, who you all know from the podcast, and Sunday Mint, who's just joined us over at Smart Logic. Sunday, do you want to introduce yourself to kick us off? Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Sunday. I'm a developer at Smart Logic. Primarily Elixir dev, but also been working in React. Happy to be here. Happy to meet everyone. Japa. Hi, Sandy. Hey, everyone. I'm Japa. I am a senior software engineer at Podium, based in Utah. Been working there for almost four years now. And yeah, writing code in Elixir for four years as well. Love the language. And it's great to be here on Elixir Wizards. Great Thank you for that. having me. <laughs> Eric, you're next up in my field of vision. Uh, yeah, so I'm Eric. I am an engineering manager here at SmartLogic and podcast co-host. Great to have you back, Eric. Mickey. Hi, I'm Mickey Rizenis. I'm a senior software engineer at Frame.io in New York, currently working <coughs> back-end Elixir. Welcome back to the show, Mickey. Mark. Oh, Mark Wintholtz. I'm a freelancer, and I've done a lot of work in Agile processes and Rails and Elixir, and been working with DDD for quite a long time in a whole bunch of different technologies. Very great. Very great to have you back, Mark. And last but not least, Chris Keithley. Hi, yeah, I'm Chris Keithley. I work at uh, Bleacher Report these days, I'm mostly doing back end engineering stuff for them. And, like, I don't know, I work on plumbing most of the time just general like elixir tooling been around in the community for a long time okay not literal plumbing though not like copper and pvc well i don't know it depends i move things from one place to the other what is plumbing if not moving things through pipes we are gonna get into these deep philosophical notions this is a very special episode. We wanted to do something different for our season four wrap. And the one topic that came up in the course of season four, which the theme of season four was application architecture system and application architecture. So one question that came up a lot and was sort of a hit of a question, and we wanted to explore it further 
to close out the season is domain-driven design. So we're going to be talking about domain-driven design today, DDD, and we're calling this special Whose Design Is It Anyway? Because we are going to, myself and Eric and Sunday are going to be giving you points based on how good your ideas are. And they don't mean anything, and there are no winners or losers, but you want to do your best anyway, because that is just a way to do things. Okay, dokie. First of all, we're going to ask the question. I'm just going to throw it out there, and feel we're going to have an open conversation, but we will mute people who talk over other people, so help me God. What does DDD mean to you? I've got Joppa to my right. Why don't you kick it off, Joppa? Sure. To me, I think DDD is more like a mindset, which helps me write applications that are more manageable, readable, and that can be evolved. And yeah, I think it's really cool ideology. And I think it really complements well with different architectural styles that we see these days. Mm, 10 points for DDD is a lifestyle. <laughs> Mark, Mark has joined us on the show before to talk about DDD, so I'm sure he's got an answer lined up. What does DDD mean to you, Mark? I'm okay with that mindset. I like that answer too. But within that mindset, there are tools to use to make that thing, make those things happen. There are patterns, there are practices, and then there's techniques. But it's about building cleaner code. And it's about finding the most important part of your code that is making your company money and making that part the cleanest part of the code. So we have finite resources, so we need to find the most important thing. And then when we find that most important thing, we want to build it in a way that the business and the technology people communicate well. So, and all of that is wrapped up in that mindset. Mm. Mickey, I've got you next in my field of view. What does DDD mean to you? DDD is an attempt by the tech to cover up the fact that they undervalue certain skills and try and take those skills and make them into a system that anyone could employ in order to, for so long, we have undervalued conversation or being able to get down to the bottom of issues. And so what has happened is that when people figure out, when people that are kind of communication challenged get together and they figure out, hey, when we do these steps in this order, we end up with communication on the other side. And so they look and they say, hey, this pattern produces communication. Therefore, we're going to call this domain-driven design and everyone should do it this way. When I think foundationally, it's a crutch in a lot of ways. And people that are good communicators or that have these skills, and it's like, is engineering an art or a science? This is the same thing. Is communication an art or a science? Domain-driven design says communication is a science. And if we put these things on top, that we will get to the final outcome. And I'll also argue that what domain-driven design does is it tries to say that things are new that have existed for millennia. The idea of ubiquitous language. This is in a book on the seven laws of learning written hundreds of years ago. So I'm having a hard time getting back to, it's nothing, to me, domain-driven design is nothing new under the sun. It is an attempt to make art into a science that anyone can replicate. Oh my gosh, I love this so much. Okay, everyone who's got a response to that, I'm coming back around to you because we got to get to Chris. What does DDD mean to you, Chris? Yeah, nothing. <laughs> like, uh, here's my problem, is I agree with everyone who's spoken so far. I actually do fundamentally sort of agree with everyone's points on DDD. And the problem is, is like, like I've read, I've tried to read that book like three times and I like actually can't, I mean, don't tell anybody, but I kind of think that book is like maybe not that well written, <laughs> unfortunately, which is why it needed a, a secondary book. 
simultaneously, I want to make it really clear. I think that book is probably genius in the way that like it took 500, 600 pages to explain dude's thought about the whole thing. And I think kind of to both Mark's point and Mickey's point, like the point of it is that it's not just about here's the five rules that you can apply. Here's the like three patterns that you need in enterprise software, which of course we all know are singleton and factory and abstract factory in order to provide, build any system, right? It's like, it's not about any of that. It takes 500 pages to explain it because there's all of this context that you need to understand. And it's about this way of thinking about the problem, which really does boil down to like, yeah, if you want to get really reductionist about it, it's like, yeah, just freaking talk to people. Like, yeah, okay. That's, I get it. <laughs> but also having a framework for talking about that and then making that transition into software is really interesting. That all said, I am not good at that, nor have I ever necessarily like become a zealot for that. I've worked with people who have been zealots for that and I never quite got it. So I'm hoping to be enlightened. Okay, I want to give 50 points to Mickey for lighting a fire. Where, where there is smoke, there is a hot take. And I see that we've definitely got some responses lined up on the right side of my screen. Mark, do you want to go first on just continuing this part of the conversation, what it is and what you agreed with, what you heard and what you didn't agree with? Sure. Yeah. To Chris's thing, yes, it's big. It's a big thing and it does take a lot of context. Glad you pointed that out. Part of what it's addressing is that we we have a culture in in the industry of just going right to the tech and avoiding the context because that makes delivering code a little bit harder. I mean, if you just like <laughs> ignore the context, you can put out some code and it might be right and it might be wrong. But that's actually the whole is part of the point is trying to get more context into our work. And it's messy. It's super messy. And yeah, there's other books that talk more specifics about here's some more patterns. Here's There's a uh, book by Scott Millett, Patterns, Principles, and Practices of Domain-Driven Design. There's a lot of more mechanics about that. The reason it's taken 10 years to take hold is because it's just been hard to have short conversations about it. There's no bumper stickers for this. To Mickey's point, I I loved it. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. I hate it when everybody agrees. But if you go to the original part of the patterns movement way back in the 90s, the whole point was, no, that none of this is new, right? The patterns movement was just about, hey, we found these things. We've seen them in five different working systems. And we want to write a little bit of a description about what this thing is we found, right? If somebody says they invented a pattern, that's just not a pattern. That might be an algorithm or, or something. But patterns are, are kind of found as working things in other systems. So, you know, some of this... I don't think there's ever been a claim that it's new or even that it's a science. A lot of the talk and techniques about communication are listening and listening for words that are not in your vocabulary, listening for words that the user says that you do not have represented in your domain. That's not really a science, right? That's listening. And Matthew would call that solving for the unknown though. So I would say that there's some science to it. Okay. I'm, you know, not great at making a distinction between the two. I, I don't know if that's helpful for me, for my thinking. But just saying that there's probably nothing new here. Eric Evans, who wrote the original book, had an enormous amount of experience in, in the trading world and building big systems. And a lot of his examples are from systems he worked on. 
right? So it, it's not invented. It's, hey, I discovered this and I've worked with teams that did that. So since I'm talking a lot about listening, I'll do that now. Uh, I just have to say uh, <laughs> 10 points to Mark for coming to the table with like references and book titles ready to go. I'm actually curious if anyone else has mm -hmm. other nice, Mark is holding up the book right now. I'm curious if anyone else has other books other than like the big book. Are there any other resources or anything else that you'd like to plug that you've read about or seen that helped you inform your decisions and your opinions on DDD? Seven Laws of Learning. I think his last name is Gregory. It's an old book about teaching. And I think it talks a lot about the communication. It comes up a lot when you hear ubiquitous language. It's a very similar thing as like referencing an old, because I think my background in teaching is kind of what makes communication work. Joppa, do you have anything to add before we move on to our next topic of conversation? I kind of agree with Chris. The book, I feel there's a lot in there, but, and I haven't read the full book either. <laughs> full disclosure. But I think I really like some of the ideas which I can take and apply that to Elixir in particular. So that's what DDD is to me. Just, I know there's like, there's a ton of things that make up DDD, but I really like some of the core concepts like bounded contexts and I guess collaborating with domain experts and just planning out those context boundaries. I really like taking those and applying that to the Elixir applications that I write. And yeah, I think that's, that's the way I see DDD as it's not just DDD, but like an intersection of DDD and Elixir. I lied. I'm not going to move us on to our next question because I, I want to dive into what you're talking about with the way that it influences our Elixir development because I think the audience will really find this interesting. And so I, could you maybe just dive a little bit into that? Like how does it inform your Elixir development and your thought processes around designing code or architecting a system? Just pull it apart a little bit more for me. Sure, yeah. So I think, like I said before, I really like deriving some of those, some of the concepts of DDD before I start writing an Elixir application. And when it comes to architecture, I think it, it complements that because like I said, it's more of a mindset and not really something that's just established. It's something that just you just need to do. It really depends on your domain, on your application. So when you think of Elixir, it's a functional programming language. And unlike object-oriented programming languages like Java, there's no, there's no set pattern of writing something. It's really just a bunch of functions inside a module. But when you introduce the idea of domain-driven design, especially context and bounded context, it's really useful to kind of figure out your boundaries, like figure out the boundaries within your application, which make the most sense for how you're going to use that application. For example, APIs. I think APIs is like, for me, the best thing that can take the advantage of using context because if you have you can have like better designed APIs if you have like the right bounded context. And this would also, in my experience, this has also helped make for applications that are manageable as they evolve because I've been, I've written applications that started out really small, but then they grew into this really big products and platforms and just using DDD and, or not DDD entirely, but some concepts of DDD Elixir have made for those applications to be more manageable. And also, you know, as the team grows, we've had different engineers contributing to the code base and just having those set boundaries and having that right domain knowledge really helps when they collaborate and 
kind of also makes for a cleaner code, cleaner code base. Yeah. 20 points for bringing up boundaries and contexts. I think that's really important. I would love it if Mark could kind of dive more into the specific aspects of DDD that one, a developer, for example, would use when in the context of Elixir specifically applications. A lot of commas in there, I just realized. I didn't know you could yeah, say it again. Commas. Yeah. But the question is if you could specifically speak about some of the features of DDD that you would impart to Elixir developers in particular. Well, I, I don't know about features. The, I mean, the tools, there's um, the patterns like Japo was talking about, the, the bounded context. One of the things when you're going to a big system is nice to do to get a great idea of how everything works together, and especially like with microservices architectures, is to find your bounded context. A lot of times, bounded context will have one or more microservices inside of it. And then you do a thing called context mapping. And context mapping shows the relationships between those bounded contexts. So we think of the relationships between microservices a lot of times in terms of APIs, but there's something else going on. APIs change over time and APIs imply a model of what that API is giving out. And what a context map will do is will help you understand who actually owns the changes in that API, in that model. So a bounded context, inside of a bounded context, you have a model. So every bounded context is free to change its model internally. But as they relate to each other, those changes prolific. Okay, I should have taken a drink of water before trying to say that word. They proliferate through the system. And a context map will show you how those changes will go through the system over time. So it's not a static, API is a static thing. It's today, this is what this API is doing. But there are power relationships between the teams of who owns the model and whose model are we going to use when we're talking to each other. And that's what context mapping does. And that's on the big level, a very cool tool to be able to use. It's not just Elixir developers, of course, but across a big system. When you say model, you don't mean model like model view controller, you mean model in like the conceptual sense. A conceptual model of how your internals relate to itself, right? And we're talking about systems that change over time. So I think one of the things that DDD tries to address is not just building something for one time, but how it changes over time and how the, how the relationship of how it changes relates to other parts of the system. Mm. So at that strategic level, that's one of the tools we have to work with. Chris, you look like you're holding something in. No, I'm just thinking about it. I actually kind of want to hear more about that because design to me, one of the primary goals, especially when I'm doing like large system design stuff, is thinking through and not really tactical stuff, not deep into any given service. But when you're talking about multiple services interacting, when I say services too, I don't mean the like the way that programmers use the word service, which means a bag of functions or like whatever, like I don't even know what service means. I mean like a physical service, right? A single entity. When I'm doing that sort of system design stuff, a lot of what I'm thinking about are one, the trade-off between leverage and autonomy. So for any given thing that you run, if it's general purpose, anyone else can utilize that thing up to some sort of point, right? The more general a thing is, the more reusable it is, in wider context. It also makes it, provides a bunch of trade-offs, which are that 
it's less typically less performant. It's typically you have to get the API really right for it to function as a general purpose tool. Right. The trade-off though is that if you need to coordinate with another team, all your productivity dies because that is like just generally speaking, right? Like if you ever need to work with another team on anything, that is where all your productivity goes to die as opposed to you collaborating with your own team and just like moving ahead, right? Because now you got to like coordinate schedules and timelines. You got to have a meeting and get everybody in the room or on a Zoom call or whatever. So, so if you take advantage of someone else's service, you're leveraging it up to the point where you can't and then you need to coordinate with them. And so you always have this balance between getting more leverage or getting more autonomy, whether it's better just to build yourself the thing. And I think a lot of times we make the choice. Well, I don't know. Every company's different, but it leaning one way or the other is leaning too hard. One way or the other is kind of bad, depending on your organization, typically speaking, because you're giving up some sort of power one way or the other. You're either giving up time or you're giving up flexibility. The other big thing is that you want to build, or at least in my mind, one of the primary goals of design is to allow for change mm. and to allow things to adapt in the future. And I've always found it really hard to do that in a DDD context when I hear people talk about it, simply because what I see people doing in DDD terms is doing what it sounds like, taking the domain and modeling it as like, or at least incorporating parts of that domain into the design of the system, which necessarily creates a more concrete realization of that design. Mm. And concretions are much harder to change. Like when you go and you build a specific service that does this one thing for this one use case based on your knowledge of like what it's supposed to do, it's not reusable. So you get no leverage out of it. It's only useful in that one, that one way. And it's much harder to change it. Mm. So I'm interested because I just heard Mark say the opposite, that it allows for change. And so I'm very, and I'm super curious to, to understand why I'm wrong about that. Before we move on, uh, I just want to quickly give Chris 10 points for a service is a bag of functions. <laughs> okay. So a context map may not necessarily allow for change, but it more specifically names the kinds of relationships between your bounded contexts. And some of the things you were talking about, as far as general purpose and, and specific and teams working together, it, it has names for those kinds of relationships. So one of the benefits is when you map out your whole system and you name things like the partnership of different teams together, whether they're sharing an understanding of the model do they have to share the model between themselves, which means they have to coordinate, right? Or do you build an anti-corruption layer, which does a translation from one model to another? And with a context map, you just draw that all up in a piece of paper and you walk around and you talk to the teams and you say, how do you relate to this team? And you name those relationships. So yeah, I don't know if it's gonna make it easier to change or not. I think it does just from the fact that now you understand it right? Then you can say, hey, these two teams are working too closely together. They don't need to share the same model. Let's build a translation layer in there and let them go in their own ways, right? So you can start making decisions on which is more appropriate because it is a trade-off and it, it's about appropriateness of each of the strategies. And, and if you just look at some of the books, even the shorter books on context mapping and types of bounded context, there's 
some of the things they do at the DDD conferences is somebody comes up and says, hey, I've got a new context, uh, a new relationship I've learned about between different microservices, and here's a name for it. So there's maybe like 20 different names for different kinds of bounded contexts and how they relate to each other, right? And then as soon as you name it, you understand a little bit more about what's going on. Does that make sense? This is my first time hearing about DDD conferences, so 50 yeah, points no, for that. Oh, <laughs> immediately, my brain was like, what is a DDD con- like, conference like? Like, I was really starting thinking about it. Well, the well, they DevOps just, guys uh, are there. The developers are right here. Well, they just did uh, DDD Europe. They just put all the videos online. They have the last three years. They used to meet in Denver before we all kind of had to go home. So they've got three years of conference videos in Denver. Yeah, that's a great way of like clicking around and surveying what what topics are being talked about. So I want to give Mickey a chance to respond because we've been talking a lot about how domain-driven design can make it either harder or easier to change your code in the future. I'd like take some time if you want to talk about that at all. I think the starting point is further ahead than where I'd want to be because domain-driven design isn't the first communication structured communication or some expounding of patterns in communication that's existed historically that we've had predecessors towards like, how do you have conversations? Well, retros, right? Like Agile said, oh, we should have retros because this is the way we can communicate and it will make things better. And it's right. Retros make things better. And I would say bounded context, make things better. Ubiquitous language makes things better. But I feel like we're starting, basically what we do is we have these underlying problems in tech. And rather than dealing with the underlying problem, of devaluing soft skills like communication skills and overvaluing tech skills when we're hiring people or creating environments where people can't have their questions answered because they lack psychological safety in the environment because they haven't taken care of the soft skill side of things. They're very tech oriented. And so people can't get their questions answered. So now you have divergence in models because people aren't voicing their concerns. And instead of dealing with these underlying problems that create the need for the system in the first place, we talk about how well the systems work. When in reality, we have homogenous skill set in tech. And that skill set always tends to be very techy, or like we downplay communication or we downplay the admin role within teams. These are often either invisible language or invisible labor or undervalued labor on teams. And so that's why teams slide this direction. They slide the way of not communicating because companies and teams don't value the communication. And so what do we do? We try and develop a system to then cover up the fact that we can't do these things very well. Instead of talking about the fact that we have a very homogenous workforce that has a very homogenous skill set, and they're trying to put this scientific, like not scientific, but like some better structured approach to communicate because we haven't valued communication from the get-go. And so I think turning towards and talking about this system of communication, while they all have great things to offer, kind of takes a conversation away from why do we need it in the first place? And is there something intrinsically wrong with what we're doing in tech that leads us to need these type of systems? I just have to put, like, that's so cool. Sorry, 20 points to Mickey for just, like, putting that, like I've never thought of DDD as like a system that was in place because of a lack of communication or any kind of like communication system that like that companies need, that teams need. I'm curious if everyone else kind of shares or disagrees with that kind of concept that these systems are put into place because teams need structure for how they write their code because of a communication thing more than because they needed it from a tech perspective. Super curious about this. Anyone can jump in. I really like that take. Honestly, it's refreshing to know that communication is kind of at the root of 
having these patterns in place. Yeah, I never thought about it that way. So that was a great point. I guess, Nikki, my question is, do you think that if, if in a perfect world, teams communicated very well that there was a balance of soft skills and tech skills, would we still need EDD? I think that you would, the APIs kind of develop on their own when people are free to ask the questions. This is going to sound like a, I'm not answering the question, but I am. I'm going to say that with a certain set of people, and as they're free to express these things, you're going to end up with exactly what DDD is. It's going to like very similar concepts. They're going to talk the same way because that's how those people interact. And that's how they choose to think about these things. And this is how they model their world. But in another closed set of people who have the psychological safety to ask all the questions and they don't feel pressure to start working before they understand something and they're not afraid to ask the question about not understanding that something, how that communication pattern lays out what they call different things that they're doing like context mapping or bounding a problem or developing ubiquitous language, these things will have different terms. Foundationally, though, the communication is the same. The systems are going to have different implementation. It's kind of like you have principles and you have implementation details, right? So principally, we'd want to have, let's just say, dry code. Now, how that implements in one language versus another might look slightly different. But the principle is there. So I would say the principles that underlie DDD would exist in environments that can communicate. Would they be named the same thing? Would they have the same kind of liturgy or like, like I would say retro is like agile liturgy, liturgy, right? You have this whole, like these processes you walk through, would they have the same processes? Maybe not. Maybe they would look slightly different, but foundationally same. Interesting. Chris, you kind of look like you're noodling on this. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I feel like taking the flip of this is taking the side of not communicating and that's, I'm not on that side. That's a false dilemma, though. I don't mind if you have a nuanced answer. I'm not going to feel like you're, <laughs> you're rejecting it in total. And even if you want to step a little farther, like, and take a stronger stance to have, like, something to bite down on, I'm good with that, too. I won't take no, it personal. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm just trying to think of, like, how to frame it. I think I agree fundamentally that, that many programmers that I have worked with in my life have undervalued communication skills. I have no disagreement on that. And I think we need to be communicating more, both with, both internally, both with with all the people that we work with, right? Product people and whatever. Like you need to understand you're paid money to work at a company for the most part and your job, the reason they pay you money is to provide value. And they have a view of what that value is going to be and you need to actually understand that and then like work within those parameters. So it doesn't do you any good to run off and install a Kubernetes if no one needs you to install a Kubernetes just because like that doesn't bring value to the company or whatever, right? Insert your least favorite technology, anything with the word Kubernetes and we'll be fine. So, so I agree with that wholeheartedly. I, I think if the goal is for more programmers to have soft skills and to have the ability to work with the business, I guess... I mean, granted, I've never been able to make it through the book, so I'm not one to really defend. I'm not really here to apologize for the big blue book, but it strikes me that a lot of what the, what folks in like the XP community were doing and like DDD community and all these sort of like overlapping, this big overlapping Venn diagram of multiple groups, right? It seems to me like what they were doing was trying to teach each other how to do that. And so in some ways, it's, I'm kind of like, I think that was part of the goal maybe. Because the thing is like, Communication is actually pretty hard, right? And facilitating communication is actually pretty hard. And learning how to facilitate good communication that is constructive and doesn't cost the company like five hours worth of everybody's time on every day because they're crappy at communicating, 
like that's expensive. If you suck at communicating, you're costing your company a ton of money. And so being good at communication, like people study that in the same way that, pe that people study to be teachers or study to be programmers or study to be whatever, like you can study to be good at programming, sorry, to be good at communicating and facilitating communication. That's the more important thing, like facilitating how people can talk in a constructive manner. So I guess in some ways it's like, I have always viewed the DDD thing as sort of attempting to do that. <laughs> it's like it's attempting to give programmers who don't have these skills, these skills. So I kind of think it's like a trying to work towards that. I'm not sure if there's a, a way to get below that problem. You could obviously take a very first principles approach to it, but that's much harder to do. And it's outside of your adjacent possible to be able to actually just do that. Mm. So first of all, I want to give 10 points to both Mickey and Chris, 10 points each, not five point, not five points each. That'd be messed up. Mostly because it sounds like what you're saying is that people who talk good should get paid more. And I agree with that 100%. Talk uh, justice, that's, that's talk well. Yes. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> I prefer medium rare. Mark, but I think you probably have something to say about how DDD does impact systems of communication and processes of communication on teams. And maybe that's, I mean, you teach DDD. So could you talk a little bit about how DDD does affect communication strategies on teams? I'm having a hard time seeing a conflict there. That's what I'm kind of struggling with. And I'm, so maybe I don't understand the concern well enough because it seems like what Chris says, these are, I think we're aligned in terms of that's the goal is to get more people involved in the process of coming up with good ideas for the system and getting non-technical people and getting diverse sets of ideas and diverse people with diverse backgrounds. So I, I'm, you know, maybe DDD doesn't address HR policies and, you know, everything else that needs to change to make that happen. But within what we've got to work with, I think it it is expanded the playing field from just go write your code to, so here's some techniques to go talk to users, right? Here's some techniques on how you, what you should listen for. And in the training videos, there's, if you get the training videos from Eric Evans, he's got little scenarios where the technical person is talking to the user and then he backs off and he analyzes that, that communication and, you know, what could the technical person have done rather than what they did do. So, yeah. So basically we're, I, I think we're trying to, we're, I think we've all got the goals of better communication. I'll throw this out there. We may be contriving the disagreement for the sake of entertainment value. Well, I also, I, I want to kind of want to push a little bit on this idea that just talking is enough because I actually don't know that I agree that it is. I agree that it is on two equivalent teams that have equivalent amounts of experience and equivalent amounts of know-how. All other things being equal, the team that talks more openly and earnestly is going to have a better time. But I, I don't think like that's enough, right? Like I do think you actually have to cultivate the technical skill because at least in my mind, a huge part of the proposition here is that the business doesn't care about half of the decisions that you're about to go make, all the like minute decisions that you're about to go make. And your job is to somehow discern what the actual requirements are and figure out how to verify that you've got those requirements right and then go in and build a thing that supports those with all of the other requirements that no one actually asked you for. 
which is that it's going to work under load. It's going to work if a hundred users use it or if a thousand users use it or if 10,000 users use it, right? Like whatever the case may be in your business, right? It's not going to throw your data away every week. It's not going to like have all these other problems that no one's going to think to tell you, but that you know are important. And in that regard, it seems to me that you have to have someone on the team who's able to do that determination and to know that stuff. And like, that's where the experience part of it comes in and to know what you don't care about and to know that like, ah, we actually don't need to worry about this. It'll be fine. Cause like, you've just done it enough that you know that. So when you're doing this requirements gathering and you're kind of like picturing the application you're going to build in your head, I'm curious if there's anything about Elixir specifically that makes it easier or not easier to approach architecture with the DDD mindset, or if that just comes with the territory of being more experienced of a developer. That is something I would love to talk about. Yes, Elixir is a tremendous fit for DDD. One of the DDD patterns is what they call a value object, which is basically they've gone around in a big circle and they said, this is an immutable thing. (laughs) So so they have to tell object-oriented people, there's value in having this very special thing we're going to call a value object because it's an immutable data item. And then there's a part of the book where he talks about the benefits of building with these things. So the more you can have these immutable things in your code, easier it is to understand and work with your code. And it's easier for people to understand when you're talking about it. And well, that's kind of our world, isn't it? That's just really fundamentally makes Elixir a great fit because so much of what we do is a pure code and side effect free. And that's kind of my kind of what I've been pushing teams that I work with to do is to build more domain models that are pure. There's completely pure domain models that are so much easier to reason about. And I'm just just super delighted to see that people are coming to this from a whole bunch of different directions and coming to the same place. Bruce Tate and James Gray's book on designing Elixir systems with OTP has their layered model. And then they have the functional core and the data and the boundaries. And, you know, I look at that and I say, this is almost a DDD book that never mentions DDD. And I just, I just love it. I just, I wish I saw more systems built like that because that is at the tactical level, right? We were talking the strategic level on microservices, talking to each on the tactical level. That is from a whole different angle, what Elixir should look like in a good system. And that's what DDD advocates too. So that's where that's such a good connection. It just naturally happened, right? I'm just super happy to be working in Elixir and advocating DDD because it seems like just a beautiful world. (laughs) I want to ask a question about adoption because I think part of what I'm having a hard time kind of grasping about DDD is like what, Like when you first learn agile, there's like three things you need to pick up, right? One is daily standups. Another is weekly iteration meetings and like the concept of sprints. And then the last thing is like respond to change as necessary on a weekly basis. Right. So like what are, I was in the manifesto sprints. If I yeah. That's it's line three. I think in the manifesto is sprints. (laughs) Yeah. I I was just reciting. Scrum is scrum master. 
scrum master so okay yeah i was just reciting from memory the entirety of it so <laughs> but no i mean this is my point is like how do we condense this down and mickey you can if you want you can shoot this and just be like no we don't want people doing this more regularly like dvd is bad but i think from maybe the slightly more pro dvd side of the room i'm kind of i'm asking like what are like the packageable nuggets of actionable wisdom that people can take and apply to their their work and their teams i would like to take this one that's a great question because yeah i think ddd as a philosophy to me is like so huge but there are definitely some concepts that i like and that i like to use when i'm writing code in laser especially if it's a more of like a product and not like a platform so like product and by product i mean maybe it could be saas or really anything that has end customers but collaboration with domain experts is one thing that i value because i think you need to have that connect between the engineering team and product managers or really the stakeholders or people who know the domain better than you do cuz we as engineers are tech experts for sure but we might not know the full picture when it comes to the domain or the product so i really think that collaboration and again that also ties into the communication piece that we were just talking about is having that shared vocabulary and just nailing down the different pieces that make up your product or your application so i really like that idea and i've had experiences on the other side where there was a disconnect between the teams and it it was really hard to kind of grasp what we were trying to do when it came to implementing a functionality because because of that disconnect in the vocabulary and the lack of communication around that so that's that would be the first thing second thing is i keep saying this all the time but it it is like the bounded context i just having those boundaries and starting small with your models that make up your domain and then going on to create those contexts and translating those into code is what i really liked because pre ddd there was i didn't have a concept of how to maybe arrange the code or arrange the application in a way that made sense but also made it reusable and manageable but i think with with the use of context and having those in place it definitely made it a lot better it's i wouldn't say it's perfect but i think it it really works with elixir can someone maybe explain in very very simple terms what bounded contexts are and why they're important and, and i don't mean obviously i'm not talking about context in the elixir context i'm talking about bounded contexts in the domain driven design context mark you could take this one we can oh, you might be muted so now we get to make it up chris okay there we go oh, wait never mind mark's not working oh okay oh, yeah i was gonna say i can go for it and then mark can correct me <laughs> i actually have you might know. be right it's a good yes, pedagogical tool yeah. let's try it so early on i was in my career i worked for a um, computer company that was international and they tried to unify all their purchasing systems so they brought people in from switzerland and italy and everywhere and they spent tens of millions of dollars on this project to have us build this one model for the purchasing and delivery system of the entire company and it flopped badly <laughs> it was terrible one of my friends in switzerland he said he said he was the representative for international right they brought him to ohio and he was going to be and he was supposed to represent international 
for how they did purchasing in international. And he said, I'm not international, I'm Swiss. <laughs> but I can't tell you about what happens in, in Portugal. What Talk to them. So basically, the failure of a lot of systems is that we try to have one model for everything, right? And we try to get this like canonical, like Chris was saying, this general solution for everything. And one of the kind of the insights of bounded context is to say, no, you have within this world of Switzerland, you design your own purchasing system, and then we will have an interface to some other, you know, other things. So, and let those models evolve independently, let those teams do their own thing and find their own solutions to their own unique problems. And it's bounded context is a way of within that a ubiquitous language is within a bounded context. Those two are connected. You don't have a word that, that means employee inside of one bounded context that is the same concept as an employee within a different bounded context. They are completely different, and you have to completely understand which context you're talking in when you hear the word. Chris, is that what you were going to say? Yeah, well, I might have more detail. But you know that that'll suffice. I would say. Well, how no, you, that's yeah. How that that's super work? interesting. How do you apply? Like, and I'm asking you, Chris, specifically. Is like in your day, like, do you apply this in your work when you're this concept of? And I'm, I'm a little bit curious about how you do it. Like, how do you get everybody on board that in this context this word means this thing, but in this other context it means this other thing? Yeah. So I can answer the first part really quickly, which is that I don't. We just don't do. I don't do this. This isn't how I think about design. Not to say it's a bad way of thinking about design, but just I, that's not the way I think about design. It's also not the layer in the stack that I work in. For the most part, my customers are the every other programmer at Bleacher Report. And so when I'm getting insight from, from them, you know, it's like I'm fairly, not fairly far removed, but I'm enough removed from actual business requirements, like written out business requirements that I just don't think about it in these terms. Wait a minute, yeah. But if your domain is developers. Yeah. Well, I don't want to say my domain, the, the customers are developers, basically. It's kind of like you are like in that domain and driving the design. And Yeah. I mean, in a sense, but I don't use my read on it as a neophyte here is that you kind of have to do all of it. Like you're looking for like the three words, right? That you need to take home today. And I'm here, I reject the question. Like, I don't actually think there's three words. I think you need to read a 500 page book and internalize it. I'm saying it in like a jokey manner, but I actually do mean that. Like, I think, I think that that's actually what it takes is you need to internalize it. You need to internalize what Double E was trying to teach you and what he was really trying to get home. That's why it took 500 pages. Like, it's not a blog post and it's not a blog post because it, you need to like remap your brain to think with all this other, to use a really overloaded term at this point, context. Like you need to rethink about how you're going to approach the entire problem, not just like programming, but like talking to people and analyzing the problem and all of it. And if you don't do all of it, all you're doing is grabbing the factory pattern or whatever. You're going to go grab a flyweight. You don't even know what that is. Like you're going to grab any, yeah, it's one of the patterns in the, in the OO book. <laughs> which I read. Yeah, um, totally. No, I, I really think you have to, I think you have to do kind of all of it and, or at least yeah. you have to be aware of all of it. You may not have to do all of it, but you need to understand all of it and understand why all of it exists. Hmm. I don't think you can cherry pick. That's my read on it. Cause when you cherry pick, then you end up with like, that's where you get the bad memes. 
people cherry pick stuff out of like, oh, the database you use doesn't matter. And it's like, what? Have you ever built anything? Of course the database matters. And it's like, yeah, but that's not, that's not really what it meant, right? Like, because you're just cherry picking stuff. It's like a people cherry pick event sourcing. And they're like, we'll just latch on to event sourcing. And it's like, yeah, but you had to understand everything else around event sourcing to even get why you did it in the first place. Hmm. That's my read on it anyway. Mickey, do you have anything to add here? Oh, I'm going back in time because I'm going to give a hot take. <laughs> Earlier, Chris said that you can study to be good. And I think this underlies a big fallacy in tech. And the big fallacy is that smart people can do anything. Like, I'm smart. I can go learn anything. I can go learn it and I'll be good at it. And I think that that's fundamentally incorrect. And I think it's a lot to do with a lot of software developers have been smart their whole life. And oftentimes when you were in school and other places, you're in enough rooms where you're in the top part of the IQ in that room and you get used to it. Then you think that these other skills that people have outside of yourself, you're smart enough to learn those things. And I think it really takes away from communication being a core skill that software engineers need to have. Like from the beginning, it should be married in. It shouldn't be like added back in later or trained back in to think about later to bring it in. It's one of these things that's supposed to be there alongside the tech skill the whole time. And so, you know, can you study to be good? Well, maybe. But people tend to grow in areas that they're already good at. When you're trying to get someone to grow, oftentimes you don't point at their weakness. You look at their strength and say, you could really grow in this area because people end up making big leaps in areas that they're already good at. And so there is a natural hierarchy of specific skills like communication, or maybe someone's very, very technically gifted. And I feel like sometimes when we take these systems like domain-driven design, or we take these systems of communication, what we're saying is that everyone could become just as good of communicator because we're smart people, right? And since we're smart people, we can all communicate. And since we can all communicate, like we end up devaluing the people that are, are really good in communication. It's not reflected on their tech that it's weeded out as not a tech skill. But I'm going to argue that that is absolutely a tech skill, not a soft skill. Not everyone can study that to be good. And that until the industry itself values this, as a fundamental skill that is required of all software engineers, we're going to continue to need these systems to fix the problem. And I'm not against the systems. I'm not against the system itself. Yeah. Go, sorry. Go ahead. I keep interrupting you. No, I was just going to say 10 points to Mickey for a hot take and 10 points to Chris for providing the hot take that created the hot take. Please continue. And I also want to say that you're right. The business doesn't care about all these little decisions you're making until they do. And when they start caring because you made little decisions about the communication, man, because shit starts falling down, they really, really care then. So I don't think that it's just as simple as like businesses don't care what you're doing. Oh, they do. The problem is by the time they finally figure out how, what a cluster it is, the people that actually made the cluster aren't there. So yeah, in one respect, usually you can postpone it and you can move on and you're not there left to deal with cluster, but businesses do care about all these little decisions. They just don't know it until they really, really know it. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. I don't, yeah. This is mostly for entertainment value, Chris. Remember this. I'm I know, not, I, no, no, okay. but I agree, that, I agree with that, but I don't think that that changes the point. Like I've talked to a product person just the other day and I was like, well, so we're going to have to load shed and here's how we're going to load shed using this math. And like, guess what? They don't care at all about how you do that. And actually what they say is like, no, because I want you to serve all my requests. And it's like, well, that's not physically possible. That's literally not math. So we're not going to be able to do that. And then, yeah, like that is a discussion, but at the same time, like to assume that everyone is involved in all discussions and that's how the communication works, I don't think is realistic in any way, namely because I don't think it's, I don't think it's cost effective. Like, I mean, how do you mean everyone involved in all discussions? That's a very broad statement. I need you to scope that down. 
I think like if the presumption is that, well, so a couple of things. So if I'm hearing you correctly, one, we shouldn't bother to learn how to communicate because we don't have those innate skills and it's just our programmer arrogance that tells us that we should learn to communicate. No, that's not what I so, said. And that's not what I meant. Okay. That's what, okay. Uh, just clarifying. And then two, there are a thousand choices we all make every day that we simply like, if, and if we were to communicate all of them, like discuss everyone and a large enough on like a, on a sort of a maximal way of looking at that, that would be untenable. Right. Well, I like, think that, we that, that, that right? you can create a problem like that where it is like that. But the fact of the matter is systems grow over time. And so it's kind of like having kids. People say, I can never have, I have five kids. They're like, I can never have five kids. Well, I didn't have them all at once. The people that do, God bless them. I don't know how they do it, but you get them one at a time, right? So these systems, while they could be huge at some point, they build over time. So those thousands of discussions or thousands of decisions we're making, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to broadcast that to my whole team, but there should be some fundamental like core principles of your team that guide a lot of those decisions. And when the decisions mm-hmm. fall within those core principles, there's no need to surface that to anyone. You're making the decision based on very set criteria that everyone knows about. It's the one-offs you have to worry about. It's when you're making a decision on new information or something that's kind of like nuanced or different or some interaction that's not previously defined. Because if you're talking about all the things you make decisions on, how many of them are defined? Many. How many of them aren't defined? A few. Those ones are the ones you want to push out there. And I'm not saying that people don't have to learn how to communicate. What I'm saying is that the problem is that we don't require people to learn how to communicate till they're like, I don't know, Sometimes never, apparently, but like this should be a skill that's ground into juniors and mids all the time. Because I've met plenty of people that they can't communicate to save their lives and they've got big titles. I don't, I don't know what they're doing, but they should have like from the get-go on a team, if you're a developer and you have to work with other people, that should be a key skill on tech skills. But oftentimes what you find in a lot of reviews and a lot of waiting on software engineers, the communication part doesn't weigh in. They're really worried about tech early on, not communication. Promote the podcast hosts. Eric, do you have a question to wrap us up here? <laughs> yeah, so I guess like now that we've we've had about an hour's worth of discussion, just curious if anyone's opinions about DDD has changed at all. So yeah, let's start with Mark. No. <laughs> no, I like it. <laughs> maybe maybe a better question is like has has anyone here said anything that made you think about something differently or not maybe change your opinion over the whole thing, but just make you think about something differently? Well, yeah, I am looking forward to listening to this over again and listening more closely to what Mickey said and trying to understand it better. In terms of, I, I think communication is important and I've been assuming that this improves it and I want to like reevaluate if that's enough. Yeah, I'm curious a little bit that I might be missing something that we could be adding to the whole whole process. It's the points. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you've been giving me points. I, I've been, <laughs> 100 I, points I for think, Mark for calling okay. me out. Whoa, that's you all you have time. to do? You just have to <laughs> About ask <for> them? <laughs> Someone had to call out this charlatan hosting this fake yeah. whose line is it anyway? Not as yeah. funny as Drew Carey. Yeah. Right. <laughs> awesome. Winner. <laughs> this is like the end of uh, the Hogwarts school year where they suddenly like pull magic points out from yeah, like, like, Gryffindor. Oh, I guess just Gryffindor is just going to win again, huh? <laughs> <laughs> When's it going to be Ravenclaw's turn? All right. <laughs> no, Hufflepuffs uh, forever. Sorry. Um, Jaffa, anything that you've learned today that might have changed your mind about anything? I think 
the communication part was definitely a great reminder on how we need it and not just tech skills. But other than that, I think I'm going to stick to my idea of DDD plus Elixir. So, yeah, it's a great discussion, though. Becky, super curious. So I would say that I still would say we're having, I think, the DDD discussion, I want to make it clear, I'm for DDD. It's a system of like communicating in, in one sense and the way that like you're defining your communication patterns and people need that. And so every team needs to figure out how they're going to communicate and that's great. The problem you run into with any system is that by joining a certain system, when people come in, if they don't know the system, they can be afraid to communicate. And if you're not addressing the psychological safety necessary to engage with a new system, you would be possibly create another hole within communication. And also the idea that a system can make up for having good communicators or having people with those gifts, like you could just teach them because they're smart enough. I think that's a fallacy. But I think as long as you're not running into those areas, you're not doing it wrong. DDD isn't doing it wrong. It's just that fundamentally communication is bigger than DDD. And Chris? Yeah, I think if DDD is working for you and it's part of your team's culture and it's something that helps you build systems that you can work in, other people can work in, and you're, you're deriving value from that, then that's great. I might read the book. I might try. Maybe fourth time's a charm. Get through it. And yeah, we'll see. I don't know. Until then, philosophy of software design is still going to be close to my heart, but we'll see. I do have one more question for you, Justice. Mm-hmm. How many apples grow on an apple tree? How many? All of them. <laughs> Actually... I'm going to tell you why that's wrong because you can graft an apple branch onto a different kind of fruit tree and it will still bear apples, which means some so, apples grow on orange trees, Mickey. Hmm. Mic drop. How do you determine <laughs> what type of tree it is? Because if we're going to get into what has to have a branch of that, you know, like at what point is the actual vegetable part of the tree coming to play? Because you have the branch and you got the trunk. Which one determines what it is? This has been another episode of Elixir <laughs> Wizards. Thank you so much for joining us for this wonderful conversation featuring our special guests, Mickey Rosenis, Mark Windholtz, Joppa Swadia, and Chris Keithley. Find links to them and their work in the show notes. Thank you again to my co-hosts, Sunday Mint and Eric Ostrich. And once again, I am Justice Eben. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast here at Smart Logic. We're always looking to take on new projects building web apps in Elixir, Rails, and React, infrastructure projects using Kubernetes, and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. If you enjoy the show, leave us a review. We love those reviews. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, so add us on all of those. And please, most of all, join us again after the break for Season 5 of Elixir Wizards. The one thing that I do regret is uh, not giving points for Agile Liturgy. That was... <laughs> Give them now. We, yeah. we're still yeah. I didn't actually stop recording. Yeah. I, just, I just made it now. How many points, Eric? Uh, 50. There we go. 50. Okay. Okay. Very cool.